Hi there, and welcome to Drones On Air. I'm your host, Ryan Kant, CEO and founder of EnviroDrone. Our podcast today is called Drones for Forestry, which is a special feature for International Day of Forest. We have a special guest joining us, Lauren Fletcher. Mr. Fletcher is the CEO and founder of Oxford-based startup Biocarbon Engineering. Lauren holds a PhD in physics, a master's in civil and environmental engineering, and has 20 years of experience as an engineer at NASA. In this episode, we will talk about ecosystem mapping, rehabilitation, reclamation, deforestation, and drones. We will learn about how Lauren and his team plan to plant 1 billion trees per year by drone. Join us for an exhilarating flight on air through drone exploration, discovery, and innovation. All right, thanks for joining us, Lauren Fletcher. Uh, Just tell us, I guess, a little bit about yourself and your role at Biocarbon. Yeah, Ryan, uh, thanks for having me. So uh, I'm the founder, uh, co-founder, founder, founder, CEO of Biocarbon Engineering. Uh, We are an ecosystem restoration company, and we use drones as a central enabling technology that allows us to plant trees and other species directly from that drone in order to get to global scale ecosystem restoration. Wonderful. So I guess tell us a little bit about the drone itself, um, the size, the scale, um, and how it applies the drone technology into actually being able to seed. Yeah, so we, we use two, uh, two different types of drones, everything from SenseFly to more custom uh, drones that gives us deeper data sets. And then we use that rich data set in order to evaluate the environment and determine where to plant each individual species. Uh, and then with that, that map, then we, we load that into our planting drones. Now, these drones are uh, you know, fully custom. Of course, we use the, a lot of the same components that everybody else uses off the shelf. So, you know, the motors, the motor controllers, the flight controllers, the flight software. But then we, we have a, a custom frame. And then we, of course, all of the planting mechanisms and everything else that goes as the payload is all fully ours. And so these drones right now are, uh, let's see, they're uh, uh, a little bit bigger than one meter. So what that's, uh, you know, about three feet in diameter. That's, uh, let's see, 13 kilos fully loaded. So uh, that works out to be, what, about 30-something pounds. Uh, so they're, they're pretty big drones, uh, fully loaded. Uh, and then uh, they're, right now they're, they're fully automated. So uh, all we do is we, we upload that, that planting pattern into the drones they launch themselves, they fly along, they plant our seed pods, uh, and then they land themselves. So uh, we're, we're getting pretty uh, advanced in what we're doing. Well, that's pretty fascinating. I didn't realize you actually map the areas first to develop a seed planting template. And then from there, you're able to determine how many seeds you need for the flight. Now, I guess, tell us a little bit about the, the efficiency of the, of the platform in compared to a traditional system where you'd have to send out, you know, a, a, a a bunch of people to go out and plant these types of trees. Now, how, how much more efficient does the actual aircraft end up being? The way we view drones is actually drones are an enabling technology. They, they enable people to be more efficient at what they're doing. So, so think of what we're doing is, you know, a, a smarter, more effective shovel. And you use that tool when it's the right tool for the right job. So the same thing in, in planting trees and doing ecosystem restoration the state of the art right now is really hand planting. So that, that's people walking along. They dig a hole. They have a little small seedling, which, you know, these are grown in a nursery. They're typically, you know, 18 to 24 inches long, and they've got, you know, a little soil plug at the end. So they have to dig the hole. They, they plant that in, stamp it, and then they move on to the next one. 
So, so really good uh, hand planters that are well supported, like uh, uh, Canadian hand planting industry is, is famous for what they're doing, but they're typically planting on the order of about, say, you know, 1,500 a day per person. So, uh, and that's a great, that's great. And there's a right time to use that. And there will always be a right time to use that. But now imagine uh, how our technology enables you to approach areas that are, are more difficult to get to really steep slopes or places that are really muddy where you can't get people into. And that's where, that's where our technology really shines is, is bridging that gap to where it's much, much more difficult to get hand planters in and hand planting may not be the right solution. So at that point, our, our drones fly, fly along. They're flying at about 10 meters off the ground. We use pressurized air, and we fire our little our little seed pod capsule. Now, that capsule is a, is a biodegradable polymer, a plastic. It contains the nutrients and the seed and everything else that makes sure that that seed uh, germinates and grows into a healthy tree. We're firing right now at 120 a minute, so that's two every second. So very fast. Uh, now, what that means is, is that uh, by the time that we have two operators uh, running multiple drones and, and swarm technology, which is, is the step that we're working on right now, but our, our objective is, is that those two hand planters would have uh, planting at about 400,000 per day per team in comparison to about 3,000. So we're, we're on the order of 150 times faster than, than what the current state of the art is. That's brilliant, and it's certainly much faster. I didn't realize you're able to plant that many trees in such a short period of time. Especially, you touched on implementing swarm technology. That phase, I can only imagine how much more increased efficiency you would gain. Tell me a little bit about um, about what partnerships then you've made in 2018 that are helping you then build on your R and D to be able to, to uh, deploy swarm technology, and how then that is uh, that is going for you thus far in deploying swarms. Well, in terms of you know our, our swarm technology, we, we have that all internal right now. So where our, our technology partnerships are really built around um, the heavy lift frame. There's a manufacturer in, in the UK that is a, a key partner of ours, Vulcan Drones. And so they build a custom platform for us. And then uh, we bolt all of our hardware onto that. Uh, and then in terms of the programming, I mean, we do all that internally. Whoa, that's incredible. You're doing the majority of your R&D internally. So tell me about uh, your background and how you've got involved in the drone industry. Yeah, so, you know, my, my history is, is that I started uh, with, with NASA. So in, in a variety of different um, uh, roles over the years, everything from uh, the human space flight programs when I was based in, in Houston at Johnson Space Center, so doing tool design, lighting design, training astronauts, that, that was a really great job. I, I'm not going to lie to you on that. Uh, and then from there, I transferred to uh, NASA Ames Research Center in California and started working on the, the non-human life sciences program. And in that one, that was designing habitats that would allow us to support plants or bugs or um, um, bacteria in space environment. Uh, also, another really good job. But the thing about that one was is that, that that really gave me an insight into the intersection between engineering and biology, uh, which is a critical component to what we're doing because this is, at the end of the day, getting things to grow. And so really understanding how to make engineering support a biological system is a huge challenge. And so that's, that's one of the things that we focus on. Uh, and then uh, from there, I worked on um, 
Mars exploration program, so search for life uh, in uh, analog environments around the world, so hyper-air hyper deserts like uh, the Atacama Desert in Peru, uh, where I spent a number of years sort of look, you know, looking for the limits of life and, and understanding uh, how, how that all gets put together. So as part of that, what uh, ended up happening was I um, uh, was taking a, a master's program at Stanford uh, in environmental engineering. So part of my work when I was at NASA Ames was I actually was a student at Stanford taking a master's in civil environmental engineering. And part of that coursework was climate change. Uh, and a course that I took was with a, a really well-known famous climatologist by the name of, of Stephen Schneider. Uh, and he, he took a group of us to Copenhagen uh, in 2009 to COP15. And I, I had actually been studying, you know, deforestation as that small slice of climate change. Uh, and then at, at, in Copenhagen, uh, the, the theme of the year was really deforestation at that global level. And so they had all sorts of, you know, artwork and displays and, and images and films really documenting what was going on around the world. And, you know, that one for me was when that, that's what made that, that strong emotional connection to the issue. You know, all of us are, are pretty much, you know, probably in agreement that cutting down trees in large scale is bad, not really good for the environment. But, you know, when you're living, living in an urban area, it, it's really easy to get disconnected from what the big issue is. Because, you know, if you have to go to the store or you have to pick up milk or you have to get a prescription, you know, these are things that, that drive that out of your mind. You're like, you know, cutting down trees is bad, but, you know, I've got this other problem that I have to do. So it's somebody else's problem to deal with the trees. So this made that emotional connection to the issue for me, and and I understood why and, and what was driving the, the global-scale deforestation, but what I was really puzzled about was why was it so hard to put forests back together? And, and so at that point, I, I really didn't do have to do a whole lot of research to really understand that the reason was, at the time, you know, the limits of, of reforestation was a person with a bag of saplings on their shoulder, and that was as automated as it got, which then I started putting all of my different experiences together. So between my days at NASA with robotics and AI and remote sensing, uh, and then and also studying these emerging technologies, which included drones, you know, I, I recognized that we could pull these together and come up with a solution that would allow us to automate the reforestation uh, problem uh, at a larger scale at a faster rate and at a lower cost. And so that was 2009. Uh, I had to wait a few more years for uh, the, the technology to mature because, you know, in 2009, it was still a lot of mostly uh, you know, in their garage building cool tech and, and really nice, but not necessarily commercially available at, at, the, at the level that I needed it to be in reliability, production capability. So I, I waited a few more years, but by, by 2013, I, I really felt that the technology and the, and the production of the commercial grades uh, technology was good enough that I felt that I could design a solution wrapped around what was already out there and that it was only going to get better over time. Uh, and so then uh, I started pulling the team together by 2014, and we've been going at it ever since. That's amazing to hear your experience and how it's really pulled you in from developing a drone solution to help uh, answer a climatic issue related to deforestation and, and how you're using your previous experience working at NASA um, and, and trying to determine how to solve that. Uh, I, I guess what we're really interested in maybe learning about, and you might have some good background to share, is with International Day of Forest 
what are the major issues related to deforestation currently, whether it be in the Amazon or if it's in the Congo? Um, what are those issues that you see how it's, it's causing a major impact on forests and then how you see your drone coming in to work with these smallholders um, or forestry conservation managers to really protect areas in not only in, in um, developed countries, but also in undeveloped countries where a lot of these issues are occurring? The real issue is um, really lack of scalability of existing solutions to address the size of the problem. <clears throat> so when you look at the size of the problem globally, uh, on an annual basis, about 15 billion trees are, are cut down or destroyed. So that's both from humans and non-human sources. So, you know, forest fires or, or other natural disasters are included in that. Uh, and then there is really a large annual spend on, on restoration activities around the world, but it's it's not enough to to close the gap. So on average, there's about 9 billion trees that are planted. So what this means is that every year there's this, this huge gap of, of 6 to 7 billion trees. And, you know, year after year, what this means is, is that, you know, there's a shortfall in uh, or, or a large gap that's been built up over time of degraded lands and uh, areas that need reforestation to the tune of, of uh, you know, the, the figures that I've read are something along the lines of about two trillion trees is what we really need to plant, which is a really big target, no, no doubt about that. Um, but governments uh, and, uh, and other organizations around the world have recognized this big challenge and, and a number of commitments through uh, organizations uh, uh, such as the New York Declaration on Forests, the Bond Challenge, the Africa 100, uh, Brazil has committed to about 20 million hectares of, of restoration. And so in total, uh, there's about 350 million hectares of restoration commitments around the world. Uh, and that's about equivalent to about 300 billion trees. So now if you've got a shortfall of 6 billion every year, and you're trying to make that up and make headway on this other 300 billion trees that you're making making commitments to, you know the the current state of the art is just not sufficient to be able to to accommodate that. And so that's where our our technology starts to provide uh, a new way to think about how you do the restoration, as well as you know the means of of taking existing organizations who are already planting. They're smart about their area. They're smart about their trees. But what we need to do is give them that tool that allows them to plant at 150 times faster than what they're planting today so that they can make a, a, a real difference in, in what they're doing. So this is making a big dent in the efficiency and helping, you know, these other conservation or management areas to be able to plant forests. Now, what can you give us some insight, I guess, on the scale of cost and, and how affordable this system is in comparison um, will allow other types of countries and developed countries and developing countries be able to access this type of technology so that they can deploy it and, and help them plant the trees and say um, remote areas in the Amazon jungle or in the Congo or Cameroon or wherever it is around the world that could be really able to use this and, and give us, I guess, some insight on some of the projects that you've also been working on um, around the world that you've been able to have some, some success to be able to share uh, with the listeners. Sure. So the, uh, our, our price comparison to the, the existing state of the art, we're typically about four to ten times cheaper than than hand planting. You know, and this is really because the rate is so slow and the cost of logistics of getting enough people out in the field to be able to do it at a large scale is is, is really 
the, uh, the, the driver in that. Uh, there are certainly areas that are um, at the lower end of that economic bracket where we, we it becomes more on par. But for the most part, we're we're not really a one for one comparison because we do so much data collection and data analysis that it's it's really the whole thing's driven by that data collection and really understanding the right way to put together an ecosystem. So we're like a, a designer ecosystem service where we're planting in. 30 or more types of species at the same time, whereas most hand planting typically is dominated by, you know, a few species that at, at, at most that you can be able to, to manage in, in a field setting. So, you know, again, we have, you know, it's a different way of approaching the task just because the technology enables you to do it totally different than, than what you were ever able to do before. Okay. So in terms of different projects that we're doing, um, you know, we have active projects right now in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Myanmar. Uh, we have Canada coming up, and we're working on deploying projects in the United States and Brazil. So, you know, we're already beyond a dozen countries. Uh, I'm sorry, a half dozen countries. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, a, a pipeline of other projects that is, is stacking up uh, pretty deep uh, and pretty quickly. Uh, as people are starting to recognize the the, the power that our, our technology provides them in in being able to do these jobs. That's exciting. I'm really happy to hear that other countries are also on board and, and see the value of the technology that you've de designed and developed. Yes, it may have taken a few years, but of course the drone industry still is innovating and evolving and you're one of those leaders, one of the true innovators that have seen a problem and have, have been able to tackle it and develop something unique. And I think that people will be able to identify the value from that. And as you've mentioned, it's, it's groundbreaking as far as the efficiency and the affordability of it. So that's, that's wonderful. Congratulations on this, all the success that you've had. And we look forward to following your journey and being able to see all the amazing projects that you guys work on in the next, uh, in the next few months in particular. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, really appreciate it and having you on here and, and sharing everything you've, you've done with Biocarbon. Well, and Ryan, thank you again for having me. And, and I think the, the last thing I'd like to say would be, you know, a huge thank you to, to my entire team because, you know, this isn't, this isn't just me. It, it really does take uh, a team of, of uh, dedicated, passionate individuals. And, and we have those across the engineering and the sciences and the plant sciences. And that's really what is, has been the magic of making this whole thing to work. Uh, so big shout out to my team. Thanks, guys. You were amazing. Love you all. So, uh, and thank you, Ryan. It was really nice talking to you. All right, that wraps up our fourth episode of Drones on Air. I hope this podcast provided you with insight on how drones are being used to reclaim and rehabilitate forests around the world. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at ryan at envdrone.com. Join us on March 22nd as we interview a team from NASA who are using drones to monitor blue-green algae blooms in the Great Lakes. Dr. Dion Hernandez-Lugo, electrical engineer leading the Hydras team, and Roger Tokars, optical sensor specialist. Both colleagues have an extensive experience in the application of drones for water quality research. We will learn about the Great Lake monitoring drone technology and how it will solve the way we tackle these toxic algae blooms. Make sure to follow us on social media at e Drone and visit our website at envdrone.com. 